Well, good morning. Jeff is much more kind than he needs to be. Um, and I, I have traveled to, I think, 43 countries now. Um, and this is not an exaggeration, and I'm not just being kind. He'll tell you I'm not just being nice. We don't, we don't feel the need to just be nice to each other. Um, you have a really great pastor here. Um, I am grateful for Jeff and for his family and his ministry here um, in this part of the world. I'm, every time I travel, well, maybe not every time, most of the time when I travel somewhere, I come back very grateful that I exist in the Church of the Nazarene because I meet amazing people who are do, doing amazing things and who are faithfully living out what God has called them to do. And if you did not know it, your pastor is doing that. So I'm grateful for you, Jeff, and for our blossoming friendship, which is at times tiring. So, um, <clears throat> no. Um, amen. Yeah, amen. Uh, I, I probably should, like every time I go to a church, I probably should wear a sandwich board that says I appreciate sarcasm because um, I, I am a very sarcastic person. In fact, several years ago, my decision for Lent was to give up sarcasm for Lent. <laughs> But I couldn't do all of it, so I was like, I'm just going to give up sarcasm directed at others. <laughs> and I preached <laughs> during that same season where I gave up sarcasm directed at others, and I mentioned it while I was preaching. And an eight-year-old girl came up to me after I was done preaching, and she was like, did you really give up sarcasm directed at others? And I was like, yeah. She's like, you didn't do a very good job. <laughs> So I both failed and got called out by an eight-year-old. Um, yeah, so just a little insight into who I am. Um, thank you again. I was here last year and could not have been more grateful. My family uh, came with us last year, came with me last year. It was my wife and, and our two kids who are now, uh, my daughter's 15 and my son is 12. Um, and we were so thankful uh, to be here at your church, and you were so generous and kind and thoughtful uh, to us, and they have not forgotten it. In fact, my son was planning to come with me again this time, uh, but he's a, a baseball player, and several of his early tournaments got canceled, and so this weekend was the first tournament he was finally going to get to play in this year. So he stayed home and, and didn't come with me, but they wanted to be here. In particular, my son wanted to come. Um, so I just wanted to say we have, a, uh, we have a very fond feeling for this church. We're grateful for you. So the church in a turbulent world, right? Um, Jeff was very kind to say that maybe I'm the best person he knows to talk about uh, being in turbulent places, uh, but that just means that everywhere I go, it's a disaster. Um, but our church exists around the world in places where we are struggling, um, where there are things happening, whether it's a, a disaster or uh, conflicts between people. Our church exists there, right? And so our question is, what does the church look like in places where it's not easy? in places where 
there's a disruption. Sometimes it's easy to be the church where our finances are taken care of, there's no natural disasters, there's no conflict, so we can just exist, right? But what does the church look like in places where that's not the case? And that's what we wanna talk about this morning. And what I want you to take out of everything else, I am not the best preacher. My wife is a pastor, ordained elder. She's a much better preacher than me. Um, She's also much nicer than me, so you should meet her way before you should meet me, Um, correct? Yes. Um, But if there's something that for you to take today, it's that you are a part of the church, the church of God in the world, the church of Christ in the world. You are a part of that. And even within just the church of the Nazarene, which is a small part of what God's doing in the world, you are connected to millions of Nazarenes around the world who are faithfully living out what God has called them to do. You are a part of that. So if there's anything I want to leave you with at the end today, it's that you are a part of this church who is trying to announce what is God doing in the world in the midst of really difficult circumstances. Do, we, do you know what turbulence is, the actual definition? So I travel a lot. I mentioned, I think it's 43 countries now, most of which have happened while I was working for Nazarene Compassionate Ministries, but um, some in other areas. Um, so I fly a lot. I travel a lot. In fact, I was sort of being smug and, you know, wanting to brag about, you know, my longest flights or whatever. And, you know, um, then Jeff told me that he was on a flight that lasted 40, 40 hours. Can you imagine being on a plane for 40 hours? And the seats that I'm in are not the seats that he was in as a military person. Like 40 hours on a plane. I was all ready to be like, yeah, you know, these 16-hour flights, you know, uh, I'm amazing. And he's like, yeah, well, that's fine. I was on, it's it's no big deal. It's 40 hours for me, but, you know, you can brag however you want. (laughs) So I travel a lot. I fly a lot. And sometimes, like even on the way here, I had two very short flights, about an hour each, from Ohio to Philadelphia, and then Philadelphia to to here. It was about a little less than an hour for each of them. But there was a lot of weather, right? So they were a little choppy, right? There was some um, disturbance there. There was some turbulence on the flight. But turbulence, really, the actual definition, it's, it's just when the airflow gets disrupted, right? So when you're on a plane, there's this thing called laminar flow, and it's how the wind moves over the wings of the plane, right? And normally, they just sort of fold over the wings, you know, as you fly through, and it's smooth. And when you experience turbulence, it's, it's just a disruption in that flow, either because you're passing through some weather or there's a mountain nearby or there's some man-made thing on the ground that's creating some kind of disruption in the wind or whatever. Um, But turbulence really is just a disruption in what's normal, right? What's expected, what's natural. So when we think about what does the church look like in a turbulent world, we should think about it in terms of what did God want for our world And how has it been disrupted? Right? 
There's a natural flow of things. There's a way it was designed to happen. The wind is supposed to flow this way. It's supposed to go over the wings in a certain way, but there's some sort of disruption. So the turbulence in our world isn't necessarily... it, It is a bad thing, but it's just a disruption in what's normal. And, 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 and a disruption in how things should be. So we have an idea of the way things should be. God has planned for things to be in a certain way, and turbulence is a disruption. So what does it look like for the church to respond to that disruption? So I want to look at uh, Luke chapter 4. This is one of my favorite scriptures in the New Testament. Um, I'm not sure it's my favorite, but it's, I think 1 John 4 is my favorite. I, I, maybe I just like chapter 4 in every book of the Bible. But uh, Luke chapter 4 is one of my favorites. Um, and can we pull that up? Yeah. Um, so I have a, this is Luke chapter 4, verses 14 through 20. And I'm going to read, Jesus returned to Galilee. Remember, this is right after Jesus was in the desert being tempted, right? All the ways the devil was tempting him. And then it says, Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit and news about him spread through the whole countryside. He was teaching in their synagogues and everyone praised him. He went to Nazareth where he had been brought up and on the Sabbath day he went into the synagogue as was his custom. He stood up to read and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. And rolling it, he found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. I love that this is Jesus' announcement of his ministry. He has just been tested in the desert. He has gone through turbulence, right? 40 days of fasting, being tempted by the devil in almost every way that you could be tempted, in all the ways that I would have given up, right? (laughs) When we did the Q&A this morning, I talked about, like, essentially uh, any struggle that comes my way, probably I generally tend to give up. Maybe that's not true, being too hard on myself, but Jesus didn't. He comes through this really difficult period of testing, and he comes out saying, this is what my ministry looks like. This is what it looks like for the kingdom of God to be active in a turbulent world. And these are the things that he lists. Good news to the poor, freedom for the prisoners, sight for the blind, set the oppressed free to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he's talking about Jubilee, this Old Testament principle where anyone who has debts, they're forgiven. Whatever you're owed, I'm giving you grace. Jesus comes out of this early phase of his ministry and says, this is what it looks like for the kingdom of God to be proclaimed in a turbulent world. And the first century church, the first century world was not an easy one. 
right? I think we tend to imagine because we have so much, so much access to information that our world now is worse than it was then. But honestly, it really wasn't. I mean, you had Roman occupation during Jesus' time. You had huge natural disasters in the first century. The, the eruption of Mount Vesuvius happened in the first century, like killing thousands of people, right? You had bandits and brigands like living along the roadsides, which is why we, it's the only reason we have the parable of the Good Samaritan. Because it was just the reality that if you went from one town to another, you might be robbed along the way. So the world then was not less turbulent than it is now. And Jesus is simply saying, look, sight for the blind, freedom for the oppressed. That's his announcement of ministry. And so we live and we follow a calling in a world where Jesus is saying, this is what it looks like for you to be my follower in the world. So I w there's a video I want to show you here. Um, this is Nepal. Um, which globally might be my favorite place to travel. Um, it's a beautiful place with beautiful people. But they had a massive earthquake in 2015. And the, re the church's response there, for me, is a good example of what it looks like for the church to be the church in a turbulent world. So... So I'm, I'm going to return to Nepal uh, a little bit later and talk about the work that the church did in Nepal because they believed we need to provide sight for the blind, freedom for the oppressed, right? So that our church there in the midst of a disaster like this, in the midst of turbulence like this said, who are we supposed to be? in the middle of that, and I wanna come back to that later and talk about that, but our church lives among turbulence all the time, right? Whether it's this situation or whether it's Ukraine, right? We talked about this last year. It was relatively new last year, the Russian invasion of Ukraine, and now we're a year on, and to be honest, it hasn't gotten better, right? It's waxed and waned, and some months it feels like things might end, a crisis might end, and other months, it feels like it's only getting worse. We have polarization increasing across our country. Not only polarization, but increasing domestic terrorism across our country. We have areas in West Africa who are struggling right now because of the increase of militarism and violence and religious terrorism. There's turbulence all across the world. And it can create um, 
an anxiety in us, a fear in us, right? Uh, my wife, um, she tends to not watch the news very much because it, it feels overwhelming to her. Now, I, as, as Pastor Jeff mentioned, like, you know, I woke up this morning to texts and was going to bed with texts about, you know, weather in the South and other things. And on the way here, I was fielding phone calls about Ukraine and, and the earthquake in Syria and Turkey. Um, so I have to watch the news. <laughs> I have to take that stuff in. But for many of us, it can be very overwhelming. And we question, well, what's our role here? What can we possibly do in spaces where it feels so overwhelming? What is the church's responsibility to respond in places like this? Do we minimize it? You know, as Jeff, as Pastor said earlier, like, do we shrink away? Do we hide from it? Do we try to avoid it? Do we prepare ourselves to just hunker down and survive it? I would say no to all those. I would suggest two major responses to turbulence in our world. The first is to affirm that God's vision for the world requires us as Christians to continually point not toward those disruptions, not toward that turbulence, but to point toward his plan for the world. Announcing the kingdom of God is our primary task. The way I understand evangelism is announcing what God is doing in the world and pointing people toward his vision for the world, which includes shalom and peace and caring for all people. So our response is not to shrink, but to boldly announce what God is already doing in the world in the midst of these disruptions. And second, Jesus shows us who we're supposed to be and how we are supposed to engage in the world. That announcement of ministry in Luke 4 is a call for us to go boldly into the world and say, God has called us to announce that he is doing something new, and this is how I do that, by modeling how Jesus lived and by modeling and announcing what he announced. Those are the two ways that the church engages in a world of turbulence. And I want to share a few stories this morning about our church, your church, doing that in the world. I wonder, I'm curious sometimes, um, how often we get distracted by thinking and talking about the turbulent disruptions of our world, right? Right? So we'll see something on the news, uh, the Syria and Turkey earthquake or the, the storms from last night, and we get very invested, right? And we feel compassion, right? Did, how many of you saw any of the news footage this morning of the storms in the south? Yeah? A decent... If you haven't, find it today. It's important to see, Right? But it's also important to not get distracted by the overwhelming nature of these disruptions and think that we don't have anything to offer. 
right? So last night, I was texting with a friend of mine who works for Convoy of Hope. Uh, it's a really wonderful disaster response organization here in the U.S. And he was saying, hey, uh, we're headed down already. We've got semi-trucks moving in. We've got all these people moving into place. What can we do? What do you need? Do you have churches nearby? Can we set up on your church's property? There are really amazing people responding already, right? I think a friend of mine... Um, runs a Twitter account uh, that is, uh, I don't remember the name of the account, but it's all Mr. Rogers quotes. How many of you know who Mr. Rogers is? Okay, most of you. How many of you really love Mr. Rogers? Amen. You know, he said this thing years and years and years ago, look for the helpers, right? And you may have seen this little, you know, uh, video of him talking about in, in situations of disaster and crisis and immense turbulence, look for the people who are going to help, right? For us, guess what? That's you and me. We're the helpers. We're the ones who are committed to our communities because you exist here. If something were to happen in this community right here, right now, you are the helpers, you are the ones who are connected to the families in this community who, who operate and organize this church, who welcome people in. So in the midst of these kinds of crises, this turbulence, these difficult, difficult moments, Mr. Rogers would say, and I would say, look to the church. Look to the community here, the congregation here, that has committed to the well-being of those outside these walls. Right? If we get too distracted by the negative piece of it, by the actual impacts of the disaster, by the, by the turbulence that surrounds us, we, we get pulled away from what God is calling us to do. Right? So if we're so distracted by the neighborhood near us that we think is not safe for whatever reasons or if we get so distracted by the opposite political party that we're not a part of because we think they're creating the downfall of America, right? Did I step on anyone's toes there? No? <laughs> if we get distracted by the really bad meal that always gets brought to the potluck, oh wait, that, that might just... <laughs> That might just be me. I'm a big, food is a big deal for me, so that's probably just my thing. How about the subtle judgments we make about people who are experiencing crisis? Whether they deserve it, whether it was their fault, whether they could have done something better. We tend to get really focused on the negative aspects of the turbulence that occurs around us instead of just saying, it doesn't actually matter why any of that happened our response and our calling is to respond with compassionate faithfulness. So in Lebanon, for example, um, if you can go to the next picture, um, I don't know how aware you are of what has been happening in Lebanon for the last several years, uh, but for probably the last four or five years, uh, the country of Lebanon has been on, in, in an ongoing political and economic crisis. Um, there is... 
corruption politically and financially, all sorts of things happening governmentally across the country, and it's just degrading month by month, week by week, day by day, the capacity of their government to support their people. It's gotten so bad, in fact, their, their currency is almost worthless. And so we have churches and schools and the Church of the Nazarene, your Church of the Nazarene, has churches and schools in that country who are supporting uh, Lebanese people, who are supporting Syrian refugees who are living in the country now, going to their schools. And they have so little money to do that work because of how bad the currency has gotten there. A friend of mine uh, who works for Nazarene Compassion Ministries traveled there a few months ago, and on the way out at the airport, he wanted to buy just a sandwich from, you know, like a little uh, refrigerated kiosk there on the way out. And this little tuna sandwich was $65. Because of how bad, if, if he were to buy it in Lebanese currency, $65. Because of how bad things have gotten there. People cannot afford to simply live and buy the essentials unless they have U.S. dollars instead of their own currency. So in the midst of all of that crisis in 2020, uh, there was a huge explosion in, in Beirut, in the port there in Beirut. Um, and if you have not seen it, after the service, you can Google Beirut explosion 2020. It, it looked like an atomic bomb. It was a massive explosion that destroyed much of the downtown. And so this is a picture of your church Responding after that, delivering meals, taking things out to people who could not get out of their house, who had no money, right? There was no judgment about why people were suffering. There was no question about uh, what the need was. There was no shrinking away. There was no fear and anxiety. It was there are people in need and we're going to go serve them. The church in a turbulent world says there's a need here it doesn't matter what the need is we're going to go and try to meet it we have a responsibility to because we care for each other so the church does not shrink away the church does not blame any group on why things are the way they are the church does not write this off as simply like this is the way the world is the church does come alongside those who suffer. The church does act decisively and sometimes even recklessly, which I'll come back to in a minute. And the church does point us toward a future that is better than the reality we exist in now. Uh, Walter Brueggemann is one of my favorite authors, one of my favorite theologians. And he has a quote here that I want to read um, he says, consider, however, the vision of lions and lambs. We have for long known that it is, it is the business of lions to eat mutton and the business of lambs to stay where it is safe. Or that children and snakes are really natural enemies. But this vision, God's vision, is about another kind of reality in which natural enemies become playmates and friends and brothers and sisters. This vision for unity is radical. 
and not to come without pain. But it is the pain of the good news, the announcement that God wills the world another way, and it will be that way. I have stood with people after a disaster in, on their property with, with their destroyed home beside them. And I have only been able to affirm to them, not God caused this, not God's going to make something good out of this. My only affirmation was, I'm so sorry. But I need you to know, God is still at work in the world. And this is not his vision this is not what he wanted for you. And it might take us some time to get there, but we can get there together. So God's announcement, the church's announcement, our announcement and your work is that God wants the world to be a different way than it is now. Um, in Kenya, uh, the next couple of pictures, I was really um, thankful to be able to travel to Kenya a couple of years ago. And... Uh, Sorry, COVID has messed up my timeline completely. I think it was just last year, not a couple of years ago. Does anybody else feel that? Like everything before COVID feels like 87 years ago? And um, anyway, um, so I was able to go to Kenya last year and we got, we got to see some programs that were happening through your churches in Kenya, the Church of the Nazarene in Kenya. And the picture that you see here, um, this is actually Dariana Balbuena, who I mentioned last night, who is our Mesoamerica Regional uh, Compassionate Ministries Coordinator. Um, and she was there for the meetings and sort of behind her to her right, you can see uh, Nell Sweden, who's our director of NCM and, and some others there in the room. Um, do you know what they're passing out? They're passing out women's hygiene projects, products. And the reason that they're doing that in Kenya is because there's still a little bit of a stigma in Kenya about talking about the fact that women have periods every month. And our churches are saying, no, there should, like, I don't understand why this is an issue. We should talk about this. So much so that many of the women and girls in Kenya don't have access to feminine hygiene products and they'll get uh, abused and tricked into situations where they're given those products by men who say, well, I'm sure I can get you that stuff if you will give me what I want. And the church recognized this and said, nope, that's unacceptable. That's not God's vision for the world. This is an area of turbulence that we can respond to. And so they simply created a program where whenever there was need, you could come and get whatever you needed from the church. How simple of a program is that? This is not a food distribution for 18,000 people. This is not a convoy of 18 semi-tractor trailers coming in and delivering aid. It's a group of women at a church saying it's unconscionable to us that anyone would ever feel compelled to do anything they didn't want to do simply because they don't have the items they need. And the church is meeting this need, right? And similarly, also in Kenya, in, in Kibera, this is a um, child development center and school in Kibera, um, the next picture, I think, 
Um, Kibera is one of the largest slums in Africa. And it's the largest slum in Kenya. And these are three of the students of our child development center and school in Kibera, Kenya. It's about a million people just in that slum area. And it's refugees from other countries and really, really impoverished people from within Kenya that have all moved into this area. And there are lots of schools there run by lots of international organizations and local organizations, people doing really wonderful things. And of all the schools in that area, of a million kids, we serve maybe about 150 of them. But out of all of those children that are in that area, all of those schools, all of those programs that exist... Your church has the number two rated school of anyone in that area. Your church, the Church of the Nazarene, is serving people in such an exemplary way that international governments have noticed them and said, this is a model for us. The church responding to turbulence, high levels of poverty, high levels of displacement, and saying, we have a responsibility to respond. And we can. And this is what it can look like. Children being served by the church there. If you look at, um, again, Luke, uh, I really like uh, Luke and his version of the Gospels. Um, in Luke chapter 15, he, he uh, tells a parable, which we're all very familiar with, parable of the prodigal son, right? We know this story pretty well. So I just want to focus on a, on, uh, a section of that. Uh, let me pull it up here. Luke 15, 11 through 24. So he says, Jesus continued. This is the, the parable. There was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, by the way, I'm the youngest, so I understand this. The younger one, right, parents? <sighs> yeah. Uh, the younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in the whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled, for compassion with him, filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against you, against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. 
But the father said to his servants, quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. In first century Palestine, where this story probably took place, this would have been an incredibly, incredibly embarrassing story for the father. First of all, his son asking him for his inheritance, he might as well, he might as well have been saying, I wish you would die. I just want my money, right? Also, as someone who works in disaster, um, he was showing very bad disaster preparedness by going to another country and squandering all his money, and then a famine comes. But that's it's not really theologically where I'm going. I just felt the need to say it. Um, there are some religious requirements for the father and some cultural requirements for this father which he already negated when he, when he went ahead and gave the money and sent his son away My son is 12 now. And I live with a pretty consistent level of worry that I'm doing what's right for him. Am I teaching him the right lessons? Am I modeling the right way to be a father and a, just a person in the world? I hope all the time that I'm doing well and I'm never convinced I am. So we have a father here who probably lives with that anxiety and makes the decision even so in the midst of this turbulence, in the midst of this disruption of their family, I hope I'm making the right decision and sends him away. And maybe it wasn't. But do you know what was the right decision? Remember earlier when I said sometimes we operate with a reckless abandon? The church is sometimes required to be reckless. The father, already humiliated by how his son has mistreated him, already humiliated by the fact that his son has squandered the money that he gave him, humiliated, hurt by his son saying, I just wish you were dead. sees his son returned and recklessly, embarrassingly runs to him. I may have shared this story last year, but at our church in Springfield, there was a, a few years ago, it was a very, very, very cold day. Um, Pastor Jeff said that you had uh, a week uh, in February that was in the minus whatever's um, or January, whenever it was. Very, very cold. We had a similar week in, in Ohio a few years ago. My wife was at the church and the church secretary was there and someone knocked on the door and it was a woman 
um, younger, maybe 30 years old, um, and she, I mean, it was like negative nine degrees out, and she showed up, and she didn't really have a coat, she didn't really have anything on, she had Crocs on, which is a crime in and of itself, but... Um, apologies to those of you that like Crocs. Uh, my son wears them. But she showed up at the door, and, and she, she asked to come in, and she said, I've just come from the jail. I've just been released from jail downtown. And jail is about, an hour, is about a mile and a half away. So she had walked about a mile and a half in this negative nine-degree temperature, and her hands were blue. And she said, I, I just can't go any further. Can I come in? And so they invited her in, and they asked her, is there someone we can call for you? And she said, I don't think there's anyone you could call. You could try to call my dad, but he won't talk to me. But she gave him the number anyway, and they called her dad, and her dad said, where are you? And he was about 15 minutes away, so we gave him, they gave him the address, and he said, I'll be right there. And our church... Um, the front door is like it's all windows right there by the front doors. And so she was standing there, you know, wringing her hands, warming them, or just wringing them, waiting for her father to show up, who she knew didn't want to see her, didn't want to speak to her. And he pulled into the parking lot so quickly and jumped out of his car. And the car was rocking still because he had slammed it in park so quickly. And he ran up the steps to her and embraced her. And she didn't know what to do with it. She sort of just stood there like this. When there is turbulence in our world, God calls us to run recklessly and embarrassingly to people who are hurting, to people who have hurt us and to embrace the suffering they are experiencing. And to say, this is not what God wanted for you. This is not how God imagined our world. It's not how he imagined our relationship. It's not how he imagined your life. God has other plans for this world. And the church's responsibility is to say, we can do better together. Um, the last example I want to give you is in, in Nepal, which I mentioned um, is probably my favorite global place to live. Um, there's a picture here of a woman that I met in Nepal. Nepal had a very uh, significant earthquake in 2015. And about a week after, they had another huge earthquake. And just... It's, it's not a very wealthy country, lots of vulnerability. People are very vulnerable there. And our churches started doing all the things that you should do, right? Delivering food, delivering water, all the things that are necessary immediately after a disaster like that. But they also started talking to the UN and other agencies and figuring out what are, what are some really vulnerable communities that are not being served right now? And they identified eight of them and went into those communities and said, we're here for the long term. 
About four of those communities we already had churches in, and some of the others we didn't. And they were like, it doesn't matter, they're very vulnerable, we're going to go and do this work. And so in all those communities, they created child development centers. So they built buildings, they brought kids in for tutoring and hygiene classes and uh, educational, like all kinds of programs for them. And every kid that was engaged in those child development centers, their families also enrolled in programming. So they were given livestock. Some of them were given chickens. The last time that I went, um, I was touring one of the neighborhoods and one of the families that we'd given 10 chickens to now had 70 and were able to sell them and breed them and all, and we, so we took one for dinner and it was awesome. Sorry if if anyone's vegan, (laughs) but it was awesome. Um, Livestock programming, uh, agricultural programming, seed distribution, training, um, self-help groups, which are women's groups that meet together, and every month they put a little bit of money in to a savings, and then they distribute it to someone in the group who wants to do something with it. So this woman was in one of those self-help groups in Kathmandu, Nepal, and before the earthquake, she was begging on the streets for money every day, and her husband was a day laborer. So he would go day by day and see if he could get work, right? Then the earthquake happened. And because the church recognized we're living in a turbulent world, they said, what is our response to this turbulence? It's not just to provide food for a week for her. It's how do we reduce her vulnerability? So they invited her to be a part of this self-help group. And when I met her, She'd been in the self-help group for three years. She had received a loan from the self-help group of about $300, which is a lot of money. Most of these women put in about 50 cents a month. So $300 is a lot of money. She'd received the loan. She'd paid it back within four months and had created a roadside store where she sells drinks and magazines and snacks and she makes coffee and tea and small meals for people that are traveling. So that, that was her business. And at the time that I met her, she was employing seven members of her family, including her husband. And when I asked her, I said, so what's it like, to, what's it like that your husband works for you? And, and it's, a, it's a very deferential culture period and also a little... Uh, male-centric, so she didn't want to be like, oh, it's awesome. Um, (laughs) So she just kind of smiled and said, it's good that we have work. And then she told me later, she said, you know, the other women in the group, in the self-help group, they come to me and they ask me for advice. And she said, I feel honored and I have dignity. So in times of turbulence, our church is saying, where's your dignity? We're not going to give you dignity. We're going to remind you of the dignity that God gave you. And we're going to point toward what God wants the world to be like, not the way it is now. So the church in times of turbulence is nothing more than announcing what God wants for the world, 
Again, Brueggemann says, we are expected to go where we are not. We are expected to become who we are not. He's calling us to something greater than we are. He's asking us to point toward a world that's greater than the world we have now. And that's the role of the church. Your church. That's your role. So here's my challenge to you. Are you ready? I, I have the absolute thrilling gift and opportunity to speak and train in places all over the world for our church. I'm so grateful for it. So, so grateful. And I get to tell these stories about Nepal and Lebanon and like all these places. I get to talk about all of the work that our church is doing around the world. So six months or a year from now, when I'm somewhere else talking about what our church is doing, what can I tell them about you? Is there a story I'll be able to share to say, Community Chapel in New Hampshire is doing this thing, and isn't it amazing? And it doesn't mean it's big. It just means it's amazing. It's impacted someone, right? What's the story I can share about this congregation, about this body here, and proudly go somewhere else and say, this is your church. So that's my challenge to you. I want a story. I want to be able to tell people, this is what your church is doing in this corner of the northeast of the U.S., which, by the way, I don't know if you know this, this is a really beautiful part of the country. Did you know that? You've got sugar shacks here. <laughs> and I didn't realize it till yesterday, but that's a real big deal. Yeah, to, to some people. All right, that sounds like something we have to talk about afterward. <laughs> we, we are the church. You are the church. And I'm so grateful that we are. So what can I tell people about your body, about your congregation? Let me pray for you. God, we're so grateful for what you're doing in the world for how you've called us to come alongside that work. We live in difficult times. There's no getting around it. There's no denying it. But I just pray that you would continually give us the strength and confidence to not shrink away from the turbulence that we see around us, but rather to step into it with care and compassion and thoughtfulness and a commitment that we know where we are headed. We know how you imagine the world will be and that we would have the boldness to proclaim that and live toward it. Pray for this community in particular. Pray for this church that they would step into what you have called them to be and be faithful to the call of God to live out shalom, to live out your vision for our world. In Jesus' name, amen.
Well, thank you, Brandon. You know, we have this picture in our head of what missions in the church looks like around the world, and that's all shifting. Stuff's changing, but this is what it is really about. It's about just the church showing up. The church showing up in the world. So that's what Faith Promise is about for us. I, mean, I hope you heard some different things. There's Nazarene Compassion Ministries mobilizing. There's education internationally that's happening. There's missionaries that are partnering over here. And Then did you hear, we don't only go, well, it's our little world here, but there's convoys that we work with, other groups that we work with to find any partner who's willing to bring the compassion and the gospel and the grace of Jesus to the world. That's who we seek to be. We're not the only church in the world that seeks to do that, but that is who we seek to be and what we seek to be. So when you leave here today, if you are prepared to make your pledge to Faith Promise for missions, uh, locally and globally, global missions, um, you can drop your card in the basket going out, or you can get a card from one of our ushers and then make it a prayer card. Pray over it. Do me this favor. Don't do anything that Brandon is saying, I am saying, or someone else is saying. Ask God what you're to do with this. And not just money. Not just money. What am I to do with what I heard today? Let our defenses down. Let our, let our, let, you know, we talked last week about blind spots and echo chambers. Let that stuff down. And let's say, Holy Spirit, what is it that you're asking of me today? Because that's where change happens, internally, externally. So, but the good news is this. It's not about our energy. It's not about what we manufacture. It's about us joining God with what he's already doing. So stand with me. We're going to sing Mighty to Save. And uh, we're going to head out of here a little early as you're singing. And Brandon will be out. And you can greet him and chat with him and talk to him about anything you want to talk to him about. Um, don't ask him a question about a sugar shack. You're never going to get out of here. <laughs> please don't do that. Please, please. I'm asking. Please don't do that. But for a moment, just for a moment, you hear Jamie playing that piano. You hear that, those, those chords. Just for a moment. Two things. Where is it that you need God to meet you and save you? Whether you've been saved 40 years or six months. Where do you need God to meet you? Your family. Your workplace, your neighborhood. See, see all missions, all kingdom is local first. So local, it gets so local right to my heart first. So where do you need God to be mighty today? Sometimes I get so distracted, Brandon, you were so spot on. I get so distracted by the turbulence. Loved ones die. Children rebel. Relationships get frayed. Economics get strained. Questions get unanswered. Hopes are challenged. First place, where do I need God to be mighty? Where do we need God to be mighty and meet us? Second thing, you know, Walter Brueggemann went on to say that we are to meet and be an expression of the purposes of God in the world. 
Where does God want to be mighty to save through me? Through us in this turbulent world. Thank you so much for being the people of God here. Let's see what God wants to do. Lord, be with us, we pray. Be mighty to save to us each individually, to us corporately, and with us globally. In the name of the Father who comes running and the Son who comes dying and the Spirit who comes empowering and living in us and through us, we pray. Amen.